0: This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for The Doctor is In.
1: Hi, this is Chad, and I congratulate you for being on the road to product mastery with us. Today, we're talking about a key challenge with product innovation, and that's that's change, right? Because innovation by itself necessitates change, and if there is no change, there is no innovation. And helping us with this is someone who is well-prepared to navigate navigation and give us some good insights, that's David Schoenthal. He is an award-winning professor of innovation and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management, where he teaches courses on new value creation, new venture creation, design thinking, innovation, and creativity. He's also been a practitioner of entrepreneurship and innovation for over 20 years, including a decade of working at design firm IDEO, which I'm very interested about. And also one of his early jobs was as a product manager for Arthur Anderson. So he, he speaks our language as product managers. As always, listeners, if you want to find the detailed show notes of everything we talk about, we take detailed notes for you as you go. If you want a written copy, it's an easy way to serve with co- to share with colleagues as well. And also we prepare a one-page action guide for you to put into action some of the key takeaways from our discussion. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash five three. David, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I, I am going to follow up on this IDEO thing. Mm. And it's just not just IDEO, but knowing the organization. And frankly, this is what drew me into product management initially was the, man, what was that year? 1990 something, the Nightline cart e- episode on the shopping cart video. And listeners mm-hmm. that don't know about this, go to YouTube, do IDEO shopping cart, and you will find the clip. It's I just loved Oh, it's so good. I just love seeing how, basically it was putting design thinking into action, right? Design thinking is, is their process that we now know as design thinking. Love seeing how that came about. So that was kind of a tangent that we don't need. I think to days,
0: the single best recruiting tool IDEO has is that video from the late 90s.
1: It is amazing. I, I would love to see a follow-up. What are they doing now, right? The people that were involved in that.
0: A lot of them are still in so. 90-
1: yeah, I bet. But your experience there, your experience VC advising, your, your experience running an innovation center, and also the work that you do as a professor, you've been a part of a lot of innovation projects. I'm curious, you know, what's one that you found more interesting that you could share with us?
0: I mean, it's a it's a difficult question. I spend a lot of my time in healthcare. Obviously, the work at IDEO spanned a broad range of stuff from. Reinventing breakfast, automobility to, to healthcare. But I, I tend to get particularly interested in healthcare projects because A, they're complicated and I'm drawn to complicated things. But B, when you do good, the positivity is unambiguous. Like if you make a difference in healthcare, you can immediately see the impact on people's lives. So off the top of my head, there was a program that we worked on specifically related to diabetes management. And it was a really great example of design thinking and, frankly, human centered design in action, recognizing that we tend when we think about diseases, particularly chronic diseases, we tend to think about the disease at a macro level. We tend to think about the functional elements of the disease, like blood sugar levels, HbA1c And one of the places design thinking and human-centered design really shines is getting to the individual level and the human level of it. And and when you dive into problems like chronic disease management and diabetes in particular, it becomes very obvious very quickly that this is as much of a social and emotional condition as it is a functional condition. Mm. And so the programs that we did around diabetes management were really around helping the entire person, not just manage the disease and manage their their blood sugar levels and all of the metrics around the disease, because the disease has tons of matrices that, that surround it, but really aiming at helping the individual achieve the, the goals they have in their own life. So a lot of products and services relating to chronic disease management are, and you see these on commercials, help keep your HbA1c in, in check. And the average HbA1c level for people that take this drug is X. The whole orientation of this particular program was less around managing those levels and more around like what goals do you have in your life and how might we help you socially, emotionally and functionally achieve those goals. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the perfect encapsulation of where design thinking is particularly powerful rather than looking at the functional needs people have and focusing on those features and benefits, thinking about the overall progress that people are trying to make in their life and finding ways to help them do that.
1: Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, taking that human component into effect, into that problem. Was that with Eli Lilly? I'm just curious. I don't know what the time frame was. Uh, I am unable to I don't know if you say can say. Okay, okay. So I, I mentioned them, whether it's them or not, only because they had done work at one time with their uh, CDS, right, Center for Diabetic Services or something. And they were... Hoping, I think, in part, to try to explore that human element a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the human element, this is a nah. title of a book that you have out.
0: <laughs> Not coincidentally.
1: Not coincidentally. I thought we might be getting there, yeah. which addresses the change aspect of innovation as well. First, let's just explore the title real quick. We'll focus our time on change, but where did the
0: title come It was a process to come up with the title. So the book, maybe at a macro level by orientation, is a collaboration between myself and my co-author, who's another Kellogg faculty member named Lauren Nordgren. And Lauren is a psychologist and explores change through the lens of psychology. I'm an innovation person and an entrepreneur. I think about change related to products and services and innovation. And both of us had the same question in mind a couple of years ago when we began this project, which is why is it that good ideas, really interesting new ideas fail to get traction in the market? Is it Mm. the thing or is it the market? Like, where do you attribute the challenge and through our work together and through investigating this question what we learned is that oftentimes innovators and marketers focus on the thing if if somebody's not adopting it it means we've designed the product wrong or the service wrong or we've priced it wrong or we're not speaking about it in the right way and immediately focus on the thing is the 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 way to affect the change that's desired And what we've learned is actually the other side of the innovation equation has gone unnoticed and under underdeveloped, and that's the human side. The reaction of the individuals who you are expecting to change in order to adopt that thing often don't get considered as deeply as they should. And so the title, The Human Element, is really a reflection on the fact that this book is focusing on – how we equip and smooth the ability for those human beings who we're trying to benefit with the things we're creating to adopt them into practice. Okay,
1: excellent. So, well-named, and I love the cross-discipline work there, too, right? That we have the business perspective and the psychology perspective coming together, and innovation involves cross-discipline work, so that's great. For sure. Okay, so the human element. Now, back to the change aspect of this. You're going to take us through a framework, because that's what I want us to focus on, get some takeaways from this about how we can actually deal with change in an organization. But first, I want to address what I see as kind of the big tension in, in most organizations, And that's that, you know, I teach in business school, you teach in business school. Business schools have traditionally prepared people to run businesses from a perspective of maximizing operations. And innovation by nature means we're bringing change, which does not coincide well with optimizing operations where we want consistency and continual improvement in operations. So I see that as a big source of tension when we're trying to bring innovation into organizations. Can you just address that? I don't know if you've seen that too and what you think about that.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a few ways to think about it and address it, particularly for established organizations, there is always the tension, and and tell me if I'm I'm answering the question, Chad, there's always the tension of running the core business and running the core business efficiently while while looking to future horizons for growth. Organizations tend to be, as you point out, particularly larger organizations, optimized for the first part and not particularly well optimized for the second part. And to do it well, organizations kind of need to have two speeds. One speed that's focused on or one mode that's focused on creating efficiency in in creating process, repeatable process, scalable process that helps those things grow. But there needs to be a part of the organization that has an appetite for taking risk and a bit of a growth mindset and a learning based mindset. And. The challenges that I see inside of organizations is oftentimes they will say the right things like, oh, we aspire to move fast and break things. We aspire to take risk. And they'll come to IDEO and talk about how they want to invent the next the future of X, Y or Z. But oftentimes where the tension occurs is when something requires a focus at the core business level. And invariably, all of the attention goes back to the core business, which leaves these innovation arms or these labs or these, uh, new ecosystems kind of without resources and without attention. So what I have noticed is there's often a big difference between what companies say they want and frankly, what they've got the fortitude to support. And usually that has to start at the very top of the organization, recognizing that there's got to be these two modes of functioning.
1: Yeah, I very much appreciate the ground level, the grass level efforts to bring innovation up through our organization. And they work sometimes. And when they work, I find they work because they were off the radar, right? They didn't tell anyone what was going on. There, there, there weren't those forces in place that could kill them because the forces didn't know that this was going on. But that's much more rare and it does not characterize an organization that cares about innovation, right? So it really doesn't need to be top
0: down. True. Well, and to your point, I mean Rita McGrath. I think it's Rita who originated this—the idea of innovation theater—that mm-hmm. sometimes organizations confuse innovation, the, the the artifacts of innovation, like post-it notes and, and whiteboards and design thinking and prototyping spaces—they confuse the activity of innovation with the actual end game of innovation, and that's also. That's also dangerous. And even when it comes to making processes more efficient, there's innovation in that, right? There's innovation in removing steps or making things more scalable. And those require change. But often, like, the change is an incremental change versus a revolutionary change. And those are two different appetites that organizations need to have.
1: Okay. Very good. So, we're going to get in, into your framework. Before that, a sponsor ad to make this podcast possible, and that's the Rapid Product Mastery, the RPM experience. This is an experience that I conduct with organizations, uh, groups of product managers, product teams, sometimes directors or executives, to get everyone on the same page to understand how product really works. It's a very holistic perspective. Um, not only do we learn those processes, tools, practices that are important for product management and what needs to be done, we build collaboration in the process that people are talking with each other and truly getting on the same page, we typically break down some barriers and build new trust. And we uh, often see a shift in the customer focus that now people leave the experience with a clear focus on the customer and it is a good way to just kind of get alignment and agreement and start moving forward. And we see people and teams performing much higher after this experience. So it's a great way for product managers to actually learn what product management is about as well as their leaders. If you want to find out more about this experience, just go to productmasterynow.com RPM and you'll find information. And I hope you reach out and we can talk more about that and see if it's a fit for your organization or
0: not. Okay. Can I also compliment you on the branding of that, Chad? It sounds like the Jimi Hendrix experience, which makes it sound like a like a rock and roll thing, which is pretty cool. I like that.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah. It, it is it's beyond training, and I had to stop and think about that too, right? It's like people are actually changing just because of how their their involvement in this, that they're they're having an experience. So I wanted to capture that. But yeah. I should have a rock and roll theme that goes with it, I think.
0: Well, I mean at least some graphics.
1: There you yeah. go. Like it. Okay, so change, and I was thinking about doing that sponsor ad there because we bring about change by doing innovation, and we need groups to embrace what this actually means. You have a framework for helping us with this, and I'm hoping you will walk us through that and how we can think about change in our organizations.
0: Sure. So, so the metaphor we use in this is the tension between what we refer to as fuel And the other thing the other force, which we call friction fuel is where most product managers and product developers spend their time. Fuel are all of the features and benefits that make a product desirable or magnetic. Fuel is the problem that's trying to be solved by the new innovation or the pain sometimes, as we refer to it in entrepreneurship. Fuel is the marketing collateral, the promotion, all of the traditional four P's of the marketing mix. So that's those are tools that typically exist inside of product developers and innovators toolboxes. The other side of it. Are these forces of friction, the, the headwinds that stand in the way of that change being implemented? And in this book, we identify, identify four of them in particular. And they're these. One is inertia, the, the, the resistance to moving away from the status quo. Even though we often know that there's a better way to do something, there's a new enterprise software that can help our processes become more efficient, or there's a new product that we can integrate into our lives to help us live better, we are creatures of habit as human beings. And the tug of the status quo is stronger than most people give credit for. So we talk about how to spot inertia and how to overcome inertia in our change initiatives.
1: Yeah. And just to pick up on inertia, I think people miss the impact of how important this inertia is that creates resistance at times. Yeah. And I feel it in my gut and I want people, I want listeners to feel it in your gut too, because change for many of us actually means, well, the thing that I know that I'm going to work now and doing that's made me successful, you're asking me to impact. And I don't know if the thing I'm going to start doing, I can still be successful at. And that hits you in the gut, like this is really threatening. And when we talk about, oh, yeah, there's a resistance to change, you know, this is why I'm so glad this is a cross-discipline perspective, right? They have a psychologist also involved that this impacts people where they live. Can I still be successful doing what I'm doing or not?
0: Well, for sure, and that that actually bleeds into another friction we're going to talk about in a minute, which is emotional friction—the yeah. anxiety yeah. that the new solution creates. Inertia can be really innocuous, almost silly. An example comes from some work researching people's adoption of iPhones back in like the mid to late two thousands where iPhones were just getting traction amongst early adopters, but they weren't necessarily getting a tra- as much traction amongst mainstream users. And you would interview these people about what was standing in the way of them buying an iPhone. They clearly liked the software. It was easy to use. It did everything they wanted. Like, why weren't they going ahead and pulling the trigger on, on getting an iPhone? And you would hear people in these interviews say things like, well, you know, I've already got two chargers for my existing phone and I've got a case that fits it and I don't want to have to buy new chargers or a new case. And you're like, you're going to not make the, all of this progress n, and experience all of this goodness because you've got a couple of wall chargers. And it's like it is surprising how little things can cause huge anchors in people's ability to move from one thing hmm. to another. So it doesn't have to be like a tectonic shift. It can be just a small shift. And it's it's, it's a good example. Yeah. Thank you. So the second one is is effort, which is how much energy is required to make that change. And this can be physical effort. It can be economic effort, like the costliness of something can also be ambiguity. How clear is that change in terms of how to implement it and how to make it? And oftentimes, particularly with software and even with products, the ambiguity of how to use something or how to integrate into your life can be uh, a huge cognitive impairment for somebody's ability to adopt something new We live in a society now where I don't think anyone will tolerate reading an owner's manual to figure out how to use something. You expect something to work the moment you pick it up. And if there's ambiguity about how it works, if there's inefficiency or or questions you have about how it works, that is mental effort as well as physical effort to figure that out. And so effort is this second of the four forces that stand in the way Of change, The third, which you alluded to before, is emotion. This one often gets really short shrift, and this gets back to human-centered design and understanding the whole person. When we're doing things for people and when we're trying to bring new products and services into the world, we have to recognize that it's not just the functional improvement we're making in their life. There's also social and emotional expectations. But just like there's social and emotional value that products and services create, there's also social and emotional friction that can exist if we don't think about things in the right way. So, Most product innovators instinct about, all right, so I've got a problem that I'm trying to solve. I've got a great solution for it. People aren't adopting it. Why aren't they adopting it? It's got to be something wrong with the product. So let's add a feature. Let's add a benefit. Let's change something around with the price. And what they fail to recognize is by doing that, you may actually add emotional friction because now... I'm worried I'm paying for something that I don't need. Or now I'm worried that I've get, it's got features that I'm not going to be able to know how to use. And so emotional friction is all of the doubt and anxiety and concern that our change or our new offer raises in people's minds. And then the fourth, which is particularly interesting, and I think we see it a lot in the world right now, is what we call reactance. Reactance is people's aversion to being changed by others. People having a natural human instinct to avoid the process of being changed. And no matter how good an idea is, no matter how clear the benefit is, if people feel like that change is being imposed upon them, there will always be some friction in terms of how readily people are willing to take that new thing on. So in this book, we talk about these four frictions. We talk about how to identify them. We talk about how to overcome them. But particularly for product innovators, which I know is is a large portion of this audience, the real magic is how to spot them in advance so that they never become an issue in the first place.
1: Hmm. Okay. So th- that's very helpful to think through kind of the, the forces that play here at the, the, the high level, right? So you introduce the fuel versus friction forces mm-hmm. and these friction forces of inertia, effort, emotion, and reactance. I wonder if you have an example you could take us through of working through these, right? an organization that worked through these and how they manage that. How do you attack these?
0: Yeah. Well, so we've got a bunch. Not surprisingly, there are a couple that are snackable little stories that are interesting. One in particular is a company that I was working with as an investor a number of years ago. They are a custom furniture manufacturer and they make custom sofas largely for millennial Gen Z audiences. Custom furniture, custom sofas in particular, have two things that are usually detractors for people who are interested in custom furniture. One, it's really expensive to get a custom-made piece of furniture. And then two, it takes a long time to get that custom piece into your home. And this particular company figured out a way to enable people to create custom sofas, custom furniture, uh, design it exactly to their specifications and have it delivered to your home in 10 weeks or less, which was an overwhelming value proposition. In fact, the cost was about 70% less than other custom furniture. Wow. Not surprisingly, they got a ton of attention from their target market. A lot of people would come into their stores and design a piece, or they'd even go online and spend up to an hour or more designing the perfect sofa for themselves. And then as they built this thing and added it to their cart, just before they were about to hit the purchase button, they would walk away. They'd they'd abandon their cart, figuratively or literally, and it got the company wondering, like, what is going on? I mean, clearly there's enough about our value proposition that attracts people that that acquires the customer into the website or into the store. There's enough about the value proposition that keeps them engaged in the product in order to build the perfect piece. What is it that gets them before they buy it? And ordinarily, Chad, I'd I'd make you guess, but but to to not put you on the spot what we learned through interview after interview after interview is the thing that stood in the way of them pulling the trigger on getting this new sofa was what they were going to do with their existing sofa and until they figured out where that existing sofa was going to go they couldn't open up the chamber of their brain that allowed them to commit to getting the new piece or are they going to throw it in the alley who will haul it away from the alley do they have to hire a junk hauler do they have to call uh, uh, goodwill or Salvation Army and the cognitive load of figuring out what they were going to do at the existing sofa, most people's reaction was like, forget it. I'm just going to stick with the sofa I have. I don't have the mental capacity to think about this now. And as the, as the company, as you hear the story over and over again, like the solution becomes pretty obvious to you, which is, let's remove the existing sofa at the same time we deliver the current sofa and maybe donate it to Goodwill, donate it to charity. And simply by implementing that change, the conversion rate increased dramatically and it had nothing to do with the product. It had everything to do with the fact that until this problem was solved, this source of friction was addressed, all of the goodness of the product was never going to be able to implement or or find a place in their lives.
1: Yeah, I love that example, that the, the product itself, the thing that people are buying, there's another part of this, what we call the whole problem, right? What, what's the whole problem? What's the whole solution that we're trying to provide that we don't think about initially without doing that research?
0: Yeah, and, and just to build on that, I mean, I'm not sure if you've ever talked with Bob Messer or some of the architects of Jobs <laughs> Theory, <laughs> Jobs. To be done. I was just thinking that um, he shares
1: a great example. He's been on an episode, I'll put that in there, too, about the, uh,
0: the moving— room table? Exactly. Go, go ahead and tell the story. Yeah. So, so Bob, Bob is a dear friend and one of, my, one of my most significant mentors, and I've studied jobs with him for, for years and years now. And you're right. The story has some, some correlations. But one of the things I'll point out is that jobs theory is all about – it's not about the product it's about the progress that you're helping somebody make. Uh-huh. Your product is an ingredient into the progress that they're trying to make in their life, but it is not the progress unto itself. And in the case of this, the, the custom sofa, the progress people were trying to make wasn't buying a sofa. The progress people were trying to make was to have that new sofa in their living room to redecorate or refresh their living room. And when you know that your job is no longer just the product, that it's the progress, of course, removal of the old sofa is something that you would do. And of course, you would make it easy for people to to have this process take place at the same time as not to disrupt their lives. And I think often when we come from product backgrounds, we tend to be fixated on the product as the thing that has to be the catalyst for change. When in fact, when we understand the overall progress somebody's trying to make, it completely changes our relationship to how we fit into that change equation.
1: That's excellent. And listeners, I just want to underscore that so you don't miss it, that focusing on the progress, I often think of this as the transformation that the customer is after. That's right. right. But the progress that they're trying to make is the actual problem to get our hands around, not just maybe our specific solution that we're thinking about, because there's probably other aspects that encompass what progress means to the customer, what the transformation is that they actually want to experience. So love exactly. that just to tie this back to what we mentioned real quick so listeners aren't going, well, what happened at the, the dining room table? This was when he was working with a company making uh, condos, right? And yep, that's right. people that were older in life wanting to downsize and move into the condo. And the big sticky point, right? You, you imagine you have this house full of stuff. What do you do? With the big sticky point came down to the dining room because a lot of us, this is true for us, our dining room table is as old as our wedding has been, uh, 25 years now. And the kids have grown up at times, writing on this dining room table, right? And it it has the marks of our history. And a sticky point became, well, what do I do with the dining room table?
0: And this is is emotional friction. Exactly,
1: yeah. And and their solution was provide a service to help move everything and storage until you have time to kind of figure out what you want to do with things.
0: Well, and it's even more interesting than that. I mean, first of all, this thing becomes this talisman of emotion, right? You've got all these family memories at at this table. Are you going to give it to Goodwill? Absolutely not. You're going to wait for it to find a good home. And so what was a thing now becomes a source of emotional friction until you figure out what to do to address that emotional friction. So one of the things they did was give away free self-storage because they realized the business they were in was not the home building business. It was the life transition business. Right. But the other thing they did is they directly rejected all of the input that their users gave them about how the condo should be designed because the users said in focus groups that they wanted a small dining room because they were no longer hosting parties. But when you understood this emotional friction, one of the things that Bob and his company wound up doing was actually rejecting that feedback from the users. They knocked down the the, the dining room wall, made the dining room three feet bigger so that it could accommodate the new their old dining room table, make the guest bedroom three feet smaller. And that increased sales like 20 percent. And that is another lesson in what people say and what they actually intend are often different which is another reason to understand the progress
1: right i love framing that as the progress the person wants to make so very good as listeners have come to expect we love an innovation quote around here i ask you to bring us one and share what that means to you too
0: right so it's louis pasteur the famous scientist and inventor of pasteurization and many other things in in advances in science the quote is chance favors the prepared mind And if there's one thing that I my experience in innovation has told me is there's a fair amount of serendipity that you have to be open to and collisions of ideas and people that bring about radical or meaningful differences in people's lives. But unless you've made yourself receptive to those signals that the universe sends you, they will go unnoticed and missed. So open yourself up to a fair amount of serendipity, but be, be prepared to notice when one of those moments triggers a meaningful change. That's really good.
1: Thanks for sharing that with us. uh, It's kind of that notion on luck that people talk about too, right? You know, luck is being prepared for the opportunity when it presents itself sort of thing. Chance favors the prepared mind, we should be prepared. How can people find out about the work that you are up to and certainly the book, Human Element?
0: Thank you. So Human Element has a landing page, humanelementbook.com. It's available for pre-order now on Amazon, as well as other retailers around the country. It comes out on October 5th. So just a few short weeks away, but we'd be honored if you would consider pre-ordering it. And you can follow Lauren and I both on the book landing page, as well as through our faculty websites at the Kellogg School.
1: Excellent. And listeners, and so, you know, too, David, likely listeners are listening to this after it came out. So I, I should have given you that wow. heads up. So,
0: Time. Go back in time and purchase it before October 5th. Perfect. <laughs> or even better, purchase it now. Exactly. Because it's available now and you can read it right now and take advantage of
1: understanding how to make how innovation does necessitate change and how you can navigate that change successfully in your organization without doing so innovation just gets stalled so this is a very very important resource for us to understand and again i greatly appreciate the cross discipline perspective shared in the book as well david thank you very much for being here listeners Once again, to find the show notes for everything we discussed and that one-page action guide, just go to productmasterynow.com slash 353. Keep innovating.
0: Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com
1: Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino. dot That's chumbacasino. dot
0: No purchase necessary. VGW Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.